Well, good morning. It is awfully good to see you. Um, we're going to go to the Old Testament uh, text this morning. And, you know, I told everybody in the first service, <laughs> this is one of those days. I, it was funny because uh, I, I have this thing that happens when I'm getting ready to preach. Either I see it all or I don't see anything. And I, I wish I could find a less weird way to prepare. But it's like I don't do brick by brick, you know. And my thought this week was I really thought I had this, like, short little, just a little encouraging word. Like when I was a... Uh, when I was young, I read the guidepost, the daily guidepost for devotional. I mean, oh, so nice, like a little 10-minute devotional. I thought, this is just going to be a good little devotional. I encourage everybody in this call today. And then about an hour before first service, it's like some of the things from the lectionary text, including ones that I wasn't planning to, to use, came into focus. And the only way I can describe it is like, did you remember those little puzzles in the 90s, like those little picture things, like you look at it and after you go a little cross-eyed for 30 seconds, oh, uh, there's the rabbit, like that kind of thing? It was like that. And actually, um, believe it or not, I was kind of disappointed by it because I was like, man, I just wanted to give a little encouraging word and get out of town. Let's, like, why can't it ever just be simple and not be something like provocative or whatever. So I, would, I'm, I just wasn't looking for this. That's all I'm saying. It became more than it was intended to be. I'll put it like that. We're going to 1 Kings chapter 17. And this is one of those wonderful stories of the prophets um, that I, I, I need more of in my life. I'm not even going to give a lot of context this morning. I think most of it's fairly self-explanatory. Let's just dive right in. 1 Kings 17 beginning with verse 8. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there, for I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and for my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. Isn't that just like a preacher, by the way? Isn't that, this is, I can see myself in this story. (laughs) I know you only have one cookie, but... (laughs) Give me some, and then you guys can eat some and die. No big deal. Um, Bring it to me, and afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. That's forward. Once you give me mine. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did, as Elijah said, so that she as well as her and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied. Neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Would you pray with me? Lord, I just ask now that your spirit would quicken us, awaken us, bring us to life through the proclamation of your word. Pray like in Ezekiel that the spirit of the Lord, the breath of God, would come upon our dry bones and bring us to life as you speak words over us of resurrection and of truth. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said... Amen. So my message today is if you will bring the last bit you have to the prophet, you will prosper and live. 
that's not the message at all. Um, and there is no call for, like, we're not going to have credit card machines and tell you that even if you're in debt, if you'll just sow a little bit in the ministry and get your grandparents in the rest home to give as well, God will bless them. This is not, no, no kind of tactics here. But I do find this story, having not read it in a while, it, is, it does have a bit of shock to it, doesn't it, to read it even now. Um, Elijah is the prophet of the Lord. At this point, he's already kind of on the run. Uh, really, this wild man who's been out in the wilderness where God has been feeding him with the ravens, and he's been drinking from the brook. Um, so if you can imagine what it's like for Elijah to show up on the, uh, on the doorstep of a widow, knock, knock, God sent me here. I need something to eat. Oh, well, interesting that you asked that because my son and I are about to die. Um, I have, of starvation, I just have this one little bit of cornmeal left and a little bit of water. That's all we've got. All right, understood. If you could give that to me, make me a cake first, then you guys can have what's left. Oh, I mean, it really, there is something about this that um, is, is, is scandalizing somehow. I think... One of the things I didn't see about this text before that's really messing with me now, I I do want to talk a bit about what I think is the most obvious point in terms of what it means to give out of our own limited resources in a way of trust. But I really think more than anything, this is a text about radical hospitality. Uh, Elijah shows up as one who is very other. The haggard prophet comes in out of nowhere to a widow woman. Nothing about this seems safe to me. My mom was just here in the first service. You know, if I, I would tell my mom in this scenario, like, lock the doors to your, you don't give him anything. Like, nothing about this seems wise or responsible. But somehow she has the discernment to know that the Spirit of the Lord is somehow working in this. And it really becomes a story about radical hospitality. It is a story about extending grace, extending of what God has given to us to another in a way that is costly. Uh, even if it means that there's not necessarily going to be any left for us. I feel like we live so much of our lives, really, from this sense of our own scarcity. We're so aware of how little we have. We're so aware of what we lack. We're so aware of what we don't have. It's, it's a frightening thing. Then we feel like that somehow that God is asking us to take what little bit we have and somehow to give that away. There's something about that that's just like fundamentally scary. And yet my sense is, and this for me is really the crux of the message, is that the very moment, I hope you can hear this, the very moment that we start to conserve and protect what we have, the very moment that our mentality shifts to we got to hold on to what we got or we might lose it, we are on our way towards death. You start dying the moment you start living from that posture. The moment it, that you start living from a sense of we have to play it safe, we have to guard what we have or else we might lose it, there is no life in that. There is no spirit in that. The moment that we start living out of a sense of scarcity, we're operating out of a spirit of fear, out of a posture of fear. And, and, and part of what's so interesting about this is I think there's such a fine line between what is really living out of a spirit of fear, what is really living out of a sense of fear of the other, What will happen if we let this kind of person in? What might they bring in here? What will happen? What if I give of what I have and I get exploited? What if I get get abused or let down in some way? What if I give this person money and they use it for the wrong purpose? Whatever whatever the case might be. When we start living from that place, it's funny how it sounds just really responsible, 
doesn't it? Like that to me sounds responsible. <laughs> well, come on. You got a little bit of meal. This is not just a, a widow, but this is her and her boy. We have a little bit to eat, just enough for our last meal. Does it sound responsible to give that away to a perfect stranger who knocks on the door and says that God sent him? That just seems stupid. It seems much wiser, safer, more responsible to hold on to what you have. And yet that's the interesting thing about how the kingdom works is that even in a world where there seems to be so much scarcity, God's kingdom is always working out of abundance. We fear that we will not have enough. We're afraid that if we give away what the little bit that we have, there won't be enough left for us. But in the kingdom, there's always more. In the kingdom, there's always, there's always abundance. And I think that's, that's part of the challenge of this text for us is that we have to learn to live in trust of God's abundance in a time where there seems to be so much scarcity, in a time where there seems to be so many real reasons to be afraid, real reasons to be afraid. I really can't stress that enough. You know, sometimes I feel like I, um, I preach these things where I'm trying to push you over the ledge a little bit sometimes. And I wonder if that seems to you kind of like, well, easy for you to say. Like, is it as if I'm not afraid of the same things? I so often have, I think, man, I have no, the world feels so frightening to me right now in so many ways. I don't know where it's all going. I don't know where my life is all going. If I've learned anything, you know, it's like uh, it, the, the further I go is that just how unpredictable and unstable things really are, just how unpredictable and unstable life is, I'm afraid of the same kinds of things that you are. And I want security and stability just as much as anybody else. I'm uncomfortable fundamentally with change. I am threatened like anybody else is from that which is other from me, that which I do not understand, I'm afraid of just like anybody else. It's not that I don't see the danger, it's just that, and this is, God's kingdom comes and God's kingdom works from such a different place. We're not given permission to live from that place of fear. We're not given permission to live in uh, such a way to where our energy goes towards conserving and protecting. That is the way of death. Uh, there, there's more I want to I say about that, but put that on the shelf for just a few moments. I, I want to talk for just a minute specifically, though, about what it is that you have in your hands that you are holding on to. I wonder what it is that the Holy Spirit may be placing in you to do. I wonder what there is a... I don't even make that sound super spiritual, to be honest with you. I wonder what stirring is inside of you, something that you just really want to do in the world. But fear is holding you back in some capacity. You know, I feel like so often what happens is when we feel the Lord nudging us, and um, I'm not trying to make this all about our local church, but even opportunities here. Uh, this week we're doing Vacation Bible School, uh, where you might say, I'd love to do Vacation Bible School, love to help, but I've only got so many hours in a week. I'm working 50 hours a week right now. I don't have more time to give, conserve and protect. Only got a little bit. If I give what little I have away, what's going to be left for me? Um, while this really isn't a message about giving, and I didn't talk about that a lot in the first service, I do think that principle is often true. How many times in my life have I felt nudged by the Holy Spirit to give something and thinking, um, have you seen my bank account? Uh, somebody, <laughs> that's kind of how I talk to the Lord about these things, somebody has to balance the books. <laughs> oh, thank you, Jesus, for talking to me about faith. You do understand that bills have to be paid, but there's this, there's this nudge, there's this drawing that I'm supposed to give in some capacity. I find that, um, especially in a community like this one at Sanctuary, and I feel like this is, I, I really am, 
I really believe this, that this is something that's unique and special about this community. We have like a glut of people here who have these really extraordinary callings and gifts. I mean, like if we ever find a way to fully tap into and mobilize all the giftings in this room, I, I don't even know what would happen. It, I know there's a Ghostbusters remake coming out. It'd be like crossing the streams in Ghostbusters. You know, it's like I'm not even sure what combustible things would happen. I mean, we just have so many gifted people. We have so many people that have call. I'm I'm never ceased to be amazed, truly, at the remarkable people who are in this community. And yet, part of what's interesting about sanctuary is that we also do claim to be sanctuary. We are a safe space. So part of our MO as a community, and I love this about us, I am not only the president of the Hair Club for Men, I am also a client. I am a beneficiary. Do you remember that commercial? You're looking at me weird. I'm a beneficiary of the safety of sanctuary. Like, I love that about our place, right? That's, that's wonderful. But, you know, I think what can often happen in a community like this, so we have this place where many people who are called and gifted and have some sense of call even to leadership in their lives. They're here, you're getting fed, you're getting nourished, you're getting healed up, and that's, and that's great. There are times and seasons, to be sure, where uh, Sabbath is what's called for. Like, that's okay. It's all right to take care of yourself. Uh, my new book, I talk about this at Lent, and I, don't, I didn't mean that to be a plug. Like, I'm just saying I really believe in that idea. Like, that is something I am. Yes, there are times and spaces to say, like, I gotta take this season to kind of get healed, but I just know that all too often what that can turn into over time is, yeah, we're just in a season right now where we're just kind of healing. Man, that's great. I'm glad that this, is, this community is healing for you. How long have you guys been coming? Five years. That's awesome. Cool. And, and, and so what are you going to do with this now? You know, I, I really feel like especially in a place where we have a lot of stories of brokenness, I think there, there are just a lot of us here who really have good things in us that God wants us to offer to the world, but there really is the sense of, man, all, all that I have, all that I have to offer Jesus is this very broken thing. All I have to offer Jesus is this very broken story. I can't imagine how that could possibly be of use to somebody else. If there's anything I'm learning on this journey that I'm on, and it, it still is counterintuitive to me even now, is that that really broken thing that you think, well, this is all I've got, that's actually the thing that's going to be most useful for someone else. That story of how you've clung to Jesus in your brokenness is a story the world needs to hear. So please don't say, all I have is, I've just, I, I just have just this one thing. Just this one thing that you have is a really big deal, and it matters to somebody else. But if we're living from a place of fear, right? Well, but I, I don't know how to... If, if, I make the, if I make this story known to the world, if I become vulnerable about this, I'm just not sure if I'm in a place where I can handle that. Just not sure if I've got any more time to give. If we live from that place of fear, we can go year after year, on and on and on infinitely, and still just become safe with this sense that, of, of living in this really comfortable place. And again, justifying this as the pragmatic way to live. This is all I got. Limited resources really just can't afford to give. What's so strange about how the kingdom works is that the way that God so often heals us is that from our place of brokenness and desperation and need, we give what little we have, and it's precisely in the process of opening our hands to others that God is able to put what we need into our hands. That is how it works. So again, counterintuitive, right? I'm, I'm clutching and grasping to what little I have, because this is all I've got. 
But again, that posture is death. The moment that we start to live from that place, we are, we are on an arc towards death. God cannot bless us. God cannot use us unless we open our hands. The really interesting thing about this to me is that trusting God, opening our hands to the Lord, operating in trust towards the divine, which looks like this, always actually looks like this in real life. Here's what I'm saying. For this widow, right, what does it look like for her to have radical trust in God? It means reaching out in, as an act of trust. It means taking care of Elijah. That's always what it looks like to love Jesus, is to love the bodies of the people around us. That, that, that's what it means for us to be the body of Christ. We can't be connected to the head that is Jesus unless we, love on the, we care for the physical bodies of the people around us. So what, in other words, what God is looking for is not some kind of abstract piety. That's what we're always kind of deal with. I'm always thinking like God wants me to, uh, is negotiating with me for more quiet time. I, I, having that kind of space is great. But I'm increasingly believing that the kind, what God is looking for in me in terms of how I trust him, the act of trust that he's looking for is not something that goes this direction. It's this direction. <laughs> Jesus tells Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Take care of my people. If you love me, then don't be so threatened by the outsider that you put up walls and barriers to defend and protect yourself. If you love me, let them in even though you don't know what it's going to mean for you, even though you don't know what's going to happen. If you care about me, then this is the way you're going to live in the world. That's where God is calling us to live from. I just feel like so often, especially right now in a culture where there is so much fear and so much paranoia about them, those people, this thing, what's going to encroach on, I just, I, I, you can just feel it all around more and more where the people of God are increasingly getting in that mode of conserve, protect, conserve, and protect, conserve, and protect. And in reality, again, the, the spirit just cannot move in that kind of environment. I, I feel like this often happens in Christian communities when God is calling us to be a prophetic people. In other words, he's calling us to be a counterculture He's calling us to look different from the world. We're supposed to have a community that operates very different from the standards of the world. We're supposed to be a people of radical grace, which I'm, I'm still convinced is always the thing that's most scandalous, is the radical grace of the kingdom of God. That is, a, People don't really want it so much. I'm doing a lot of ranting today. So uh, th- this is a footnote, all right? I feel like so often when I've seen people attempt to uh, live from radical grace, the critique always becomes from like scribes and Pharisees. Boy, they're just trying to let everybody in. Well, this isn't about growing a big church. You know, whatever. Here's the really ironic thing. Nothing sells worse than grace. People hate grace. I'm, I mean this. They don't really, because what happens is when you really start proclaiming radical grace, it's the same thing that happens in that parable of Jesus, you know, where the workers who come at the end of the day are getting paid the same thing as the people who got there at 8 o'clock. That's not fair. People don't like it. Us versus them sells better than that. We know who we are because there's a them sells better than that. People find themselves easily in that story. They get a lot of identity from that story, from we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. People, grace is very scandalous to people. You're just going to let anybody in here? That's what's so ironic is I find that often the more people embrace the kind of message of radical, of radical grace, it often, it often costs them things. And so to bring that around to this, then I think the mentality within a local church can so often become, but if we do this, if we embody this message, if we become this kind of people, are we still going to be able to pay the light bill? 
Are people going to come? Are we going to lose more people? See, that's what I'm trying to say, is the very moment you start thinking like that, what if we lose somebody? We're, we're already operating out of that place of scarcity instead of God's abundance, and it, and it doesn't work. I know that the light bill has to be paid. I just happen to believe that if we'll trust God and do what God is asking us to do, that he'll be faithful to take care of those things. And in the meantime, it's not really a question for us. Whatever he tells us to do, we, we, just, we just have to do that. <laughs> we can't be concerned about whether or not the message is going to be appealing to big givers. That's not how we think. It, that, to think that way, to go in that kind of conserve and protect mentality, means inevitably we really are going to lose. God can only work through people who have open hands and open hearts, who aren't scared of what they might lose, who aren't thinking in terms of, I got to make sure there's still enough for me and mine, but are willing to take the risk to extend our hands and extend our hearts, even though we know it might really cost us something. Is that making any sense at all right now? Yeah, so the thing that made my head explode a couple hours ago that I had not seen before this morning, because I was just going to preach this part of the lectionary text, and that was all, and I hadn't really even thought about the other ones. And then, really out of nowhere, I felt like the Holy Spirit pressed this in on me. So we have this text where the woman who uh, it, you know, has this last little bit of meal left, thankfully she does obey the Lord. Thankfully she does extend herself in trust. And it turns out to be one of the great, you know, prophet miracle stories. Then day after day, there's more food. God keeps providing. Uh, she keeps showing up, and every time, there's something else. That's really, really wonderful. But I, I feel like the latter part of the reading for this morning kind of takes this into a different place. So the lectionary goes from verses 8 through 16, then skips down to verse 17 and 24, and it's another little story here. So after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house of Zarephath, became ill. This is the son of the woman. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. She then said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. But he said to her, Give me your son. He took him from her bosom, carried him up into the upper chamber where he was lodging, and laid him on his own bed. He cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I'm staying by killing her son? I mean, Elijah's upset about this. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again, and he, rev and he revived. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and gave him to his mother. Then Elijah said, See, your son is alive. So the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. I know Chris Green touched on this text a few weeks ago, which is part of the reason why I wasn't going to touch it today. But I think when we put it in context of the other story, it just, it just does so much in me. Because here we see where the woman in the first part of the text has a choice that either she can open her hands, give the little bit that she's kept back for her and her son, or not, if she doesn't give, and the reason, of course, is because she loves her boy and she wants him to have one more good meal. Now, the ironic thing is God supplies, God provides, and then a little bit further down, he still dies, which for me raises this question. What does it look like for us if we do what it takes to conserve and protect 
and we grasp, saying, but we got to take care, we gotta, I got to take care of me and mine. We got to take care of our own. Why? So that we don't die. Well, here's the thing. You're still going to die. <laughs> I always laugh at these terribly wrong moments. Do you, do you see why I think this is funny? Like, but uh, do this so we can and, and then, a little while later, he gets this terrible headache in the field, and he dies anyway? I just think it says something to us about how little we really are in control of our lives. Even if she had done everything right, right? I mean, God preserves him in this one story, but he still faces this death later. Obviously, it's a resurrection story, but I, I want to connect, which connects to the gospel reading for today. Let me just, this short bit and... That's it. But Luke 7, verses 11 through 17, is kind of the direct connection to this passage. In the gospel, soon after healing the centurion slave, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. So this is another widow story. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her, and he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. This word about him spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. So the gospel text also has a story of a widow's son that's going to be raised from the dead. And this is what I was trying to get around to where I felt like lightning kind of struck me in my brain. Thinking about how so often I feel like it is some form of the fear of death that keeps me from stepping out and doing what I really feel called to do. What if the worst thing happens? What if I say what I feel like God's given me to say and I get rejected? What if I do what I feel like God has put in what God has put in me to do, and it goes wrong. What if I'm not accepted? What if nobody listens? Or the absolute worst case scenario, what if I step out in faith and do what I feel like God's calling me to do, and I die? I think that, could we generally agree that that's basically the worst case scenario would be death, right? So what if, what if I step out and do this? What, what, if, what if the worst thing happens? And that, for me, is where the second part of the Elijah text and the gospel text so set off fire in my head. The reason that we as people of God are able to do things that scare us, the reason that we're able to embrace the stranger, even though we're afraid the stranger might hurt us, the reason that we're able to let go of our last meal, even though we know we need to eat, is precisely because we believe that even if we die, we believe in the God of resurrection, that's why we're able to do things nobody else feels comfortable doing. That's why we're able to extend ourselves in ways that nobody else feels comfortable extending. Because even if the worst thing happens, the way I often put it, the worst thing that ever could happen has already happened. In that we killed Jesus. The son of love was murdered. And yet, God has overcome this through resurrection. The worst thing that, the worst thing that can happen is that you're going to die. But you're going to die anyway. Everybody's going to die anyway. Isn't that the irony? If you try really hard to make sure that you behave in such a way where nobody's going to reject you, folks are going to reject you anyway. <laughs> the things that you're afraid of are at some point are going to come to pass anyway. That is the most negative, pessimistic, like 
awful thing I've ever heard from the pulpit, but it is true. Even after God provides the meal for the widow and her son, he still does a few verses later. So that kind of stuff, that's going to happen regardless. But I really do think that for the people of God, there is a fate that, that, that is worse than death. And that would be to be alive and yet not really be living because we're living with clenched fists, holding on to what we have. That's a fate worse than death. God can raise people from the dead. But if, we're so, if we have such a paralyzing fear of death, that we're so terribly afraid that the worst thing might happen, it'll cause us to live in a place where we never give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to do something really miraculous in our midst. I don't know about you, but that scares me to death, the idea of being part of a wonderful Christian community where we have all these gifts and all these things that, we, that God has put in us to do, and to somehow to bury that because we're afraid of what we might lose, to somehow play it safe, when we know that there's an extraordinary adventure that God wants to take us on as a people, oh my goodness, I just think so often the, the very decisions that we make out of a sense of wanting to protect ourselves, out of wanting to preserve and conserve once again, those are the things that really doom us. Those are the things that really keep us from experiencing divine life. Oh, gracious. I just think as much as anybody else, I'm still looking to find that place in my life where everything's going to become clear and smooth and God showed us what to do and we're just doing that now and we're just happy and awesome and let's like move on to the next thing. Are you aware at this point in your life like that that, that place literally does not exist? Like it just doesn't happen. We're always kind of thinking, I always have something in my life where I say, well, if I can just get through with this. Do you have that? It, once I get through this stretch, once I'm going to get through this little season, then, then what? Then it's going to be something else. Am I right? It, well, if I can just get this relationship mended, that's great. And then the other relationship unravels. If I can just get this situation at work resolved, that's great. And then something else happens. Sometimes I feel like my whole life is one perpetual game of whack-a-mole. Do you remember that? And it's like one thing comes in, then over here, and then... It's endless. And yet we still live so much of our lives in this perpetual myth, right, that one day there's going to be a there. I'm going to this place of arrival where I'm doing what God has called me to do and I'm living from a place of fulfillment and happiness and peace and joy and your kids are going to be there and your grandkids and there's going to be margaritas in the Caribbean and it's just going to be awesome. I know this is terrible news. That place does not exist, there is no there. Do you hear what I'm saying? There is no there. If it's not one thing, it will be something else. That place of arrival, you're not going to get there. And one of the frustrating things about how God works is because even as God provides and even as God works and moves, I want to figure him out and say, well, now that I've got the formula because of what God did in this season, now we'll know what to do next time. But see, that's the thing. The lesson itself, right, the, the, the method that God uses is never the deal. God wants to teach us to trust. So inevitably, the thing I feel like God taught me in this season that worked, I try to do that in the next season, and it doesn't work at all. Because what God actually wants is for me to have to trust him and depend on him all over again. To actually live from a place, imagine this, to where if the Holy Spirit doesn't work and move, then it just doesn't happen. We're supposed to live from that place of dependence and trust. It's supposed to be scary. We're supposed to feel like we don't really know what's going to happen. 
That happens a good bit in my preaching. People say, Jonathan, sometimes I just don't know what you're going to say next. And I say, the suspense is actual because I don't know either. <laughs> my whole life is like that. I, I, we never know what's around the corner. Of course we don't. Of course we don't. I love Frederick Buechner's quote. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. Beautiful and terrible things. But the point is, the terrible things are going to happen one way or the other. Tragedy is going to happen. You're going to have to deal with hard things no matter how you slice it. Which is why I think the invitation is one with so much freedom and liberty in it that instead of trying to conserve and protect and try to somehow hold back to keep the inevitable from happening, from actually opening up our hands and opening our hearts and saying whatever little bit God has placed in my hands, whatever he's given to me, I'm going to give that and I'm going to trust. I'm not going to play it safe. I'm not going to worry about the worst case scenario. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Worst thing you can do to me is kill me and even so, we worship a God who we believe raises from the dead. We cannot live dominated by fear. I'm trying to land the plane. We can't live in the grip of fear. I cannot stress this enough. For people of God, all decisions born out of fear are bad decisions. They are bad. They are bad. The very mo- fear and love does not coexist. Perfect love casts out fear. We're supposed to walk in love, not in fear. The very moment that and that's where I'll say it again. The people who scream in my ear who are all about conserving and protecting and worried that they're going to creep in or this is going to happen. Like, hey, I get it. That's pragmatic, practical talk. Makes sense to me. My lizard brain, I want to do, kind of wants the same thing. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. We need to, we got to be safe here. Somebody's got to be responsible. That's just not how God works. That's not how the kingdom works. The kingdom means we always have to make the decision to live vulnerable and tender and exposed not holding on tightly to the things that are familiar and safe, but trusting the God of resurrection. You know about the only thing that for me feels really airtight at this point about uh, how God works, like the only sentence I feel like I can consistently put weight down on in this way in terms of like any kind of predictability for my life. I love where at the wedding of Cana, Jesus is asking for uh, the, the servants to bring the, the, the water, you know, that he's gonna turn the wine. And Mary looks at the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. That's the best I got right there. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. But you better believe that since we're following the God of the Exodus, that we're following a God on the move, so we have to be a people on the move. The scenery is changing all the time. <laughs> if it's not one thing, it's going to be another. So there is no, there is no reason whatsoever to try to like hunker down and just try to hold on to what we got. Does it work? Does it work? The only way God can use us as if we open our hands. I want to pray before we come to the table. And I want to invite you, if you could, just a moment, just close your eyes. And if you feel comfortable, never try to push people to do things they don't feel comfortable with. But if you do, I'd love it if in some capacity you could actually hold out one or two hands, just to extend a hand. And in this way, specifically asking the Holy Spirit this question. I like sometimes these kinds of posture things because I think it just helps us to focus a little bit. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, could you just show us right now, show us the things that you've already placed in our hands. What have you already given us? What is the little jar of meal that we do have? What's the the, the little bit of water? What is the thing 
that my brothers and sisters, my friends, that they know how to do that nobody else knows how to do? What is the, what is the unique gift that you've given to them? What is this unique story that you've placed inside of them? What is this song? What's the one thing that we already hold, Lord? God, I pray that whatever that is that you've given to us, whatever the skill is, whatever the story, whatever the song, could you give us the grace this morning not to cling on, not to hold on to it, but to open our hands, to release our grip, and instead of clenching our fist, to extend our fingers and to say, Lord, we trust you. We trust you. We trust in the God of resurrection. We will not be controlled by fear. We will not live trying to conserve what we already have. We won't bury our talents in the sand because we think somehow it'll be safer, Lord. We want to live as people who take the risk of grace. We want to live as people who, um, who extend it all, Lord, and trust that you'll meet us. Hey, I just want to pray specifically for some people this morning. I, just, I feel so pressed on this right now. Man, some of you guys I just think are, are re- really into here. You've, um, it's great that you have been in this place for a season of healing and whatever. But I just think for some of you right now who really have a sense that you're just not worthy or God can't use you where you are, that somehow you need to get more fixed, somehow you need to get more straight before you're of use to anybody. I just want to tell you this morning, that voice is not the Holy Spirit. That is not the Holy Spirit. And that the way that God is going to bring your full healing and your full restoration is not going to be by staying here on your back and just hoping somehow that the Lord hits you. It's going to be an extend in your hands. It means you're going to have to give that broken thing that you've got right now. It means you're going to have to be willing to give. Even while you don't feel strong and you don't feel resourceful, you're going to have to give what you have for the Lord to get you what you need. So I just, I just want to challenge somebody with that right now that who just is still feeling that. I, I can't be of use to anybody. I'm not fixed enough. Listen, this is how God heals is that we take the little bit that we have, even though we think we desperately need it, and we give it for somebody else. That is how the healing comes. So I hope somebody can receive that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ask our servers. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.